to another episode of Cardonomics Cast. Today we have a special guest, Patrick Minford. Patrick is an acclaimed factorite and free market economist. Uh, he's working here at Cardiff now, giving lectures in macroeconomics. So Patrick, we'll start off some easy questions. Your favourite album and artist, Patrick? Well, I'm, I'm very keen on operas. It would be um, uh, some recordings by, I think my favorite artist is Kirsten Flagstad, who's a famous Norwegian soprano, whom I'm a great devotee of. And she, she sang a lot of the big Wagnerian parts, which I'm, 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 I'm very attached to. So I guess that's probably the answer there. Start with a bit about your early life. So can you talk us through your educational experience as a student? So what course did you study as an undergraduate and the first university you attended? Well, I, I, I was an undergraduate at Oxford, um, Balliol College, Oxford, in the early 60s, and I did PPE, you know, which is a pretty notorious degree. Lots of politicians do it, but of course, I didn't, didn't become a politician, fortunately. Uh, but I, 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 mainly, uh, I mainly did philosophy and politics, actually, when I was at Oxford, and I did a bit of economics, but not as much as, as I did later. Were there any philosophers you particularly took an interest in? Well, I was very interested in the uh, utilitarians. Uh, actually, okay. my tutor was was, Dave, uh, was um, David Hare, um, I, and uh, he 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 was um, a moral philosopher. So I was very interested in what he his teaching and also um, uh, other moral philosophers like Kant and. Uh, um, there was a lot of, um, you know, Oxford, of course, being at Oxford, it was Oxford philosophy, which is very much um, a philosophy of, uh, of, of language, really. And it's kind of very kind of trying to explode pomposity, really. I mean, yeah. there was, there was a, a, a famous little book by J.L. Austin, which was entitled What is Truth? And it starts up by saying, well, what is truth? Lots of people have asked this question. Let's look at the authoritative answer, which is in the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> I thought that was both witty and also perceptive. <laughs> Very good. So uh, when did you know economics was your choice, the subject you wanted to pursue? Well, after I left university, I, I traveled around for, for a year and got very interested in what was going on in the world, really. And, um, you know, I traveled to all to the Far East and across Asia. Um, and uh, my father was the, um, the, uh, 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 the sort of acting ambassador in the Philippines. So I was able to, to, to travel to the Philippines and visit him there and get to know the Philippines quite well and, and all points kind of between London and the Philippines. And I, I, I hitchhiked back from there to to England. And um, so in the course of all that, I learned quite a bit about the world and was very interested in the economics of it all, which seemed to be the key, the key factors really that were, were uh, you know, of interest. Yeah. Have you not become an academic? What would you might have gone into? 
Well, I wasn't an academic at first. I, at first, I, I was interested in inter international development, and actually, I had a, I had a job in the, in uh, in the um, in Ministry of Overseas Development for a couple of years, and then I had another job which kind of came out of that as as an economist in Malawi where I was uh, helping I was an economist in the treasury of Malawi the ministry of finance and so in fact my early my early uh, experiences were all in government really uh, around particularly in, uh, in 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 this interesting developing developing country Malawi which was at that time the poorest country in the world so I learned an awful lot from from being there about what happens in in very poor countries, you know, and how, how people behave. And as I kind of observed what was happening there, I realized that, that they, markets were, were really important uh, in the lives of, of people. And uh, they, they acted extremely intelligently in the context of markets. Uh, and that wasn't, wasn't what I'd heard at, at Oxford, I have to say. So it set me thinking that really I needed to study economics from a completely different angle really in which people were making intelligent decisions about their environment and their plans for, for crops and that sort of thing as opposed to the sort of rather paternalistic view of economics that I was taught at Oxford. So why did you choose to come to Cardiff? Well that's a lot later when I come you know I I I I I was, I had been at Liverpool and yeah. I was at Liverpool for, for 21 years um, as a, I had a chair at Liverpool in applied economics and um, basically I got a, I got a better offer from Cardiff, got <laughs> <laughs> a long story short. And, uh, you know, Cardiff was really, uh, the business school was, was investing in economics and they asked me to come and uh, help you know this investment this new investment in the in the department of course today the department is much bigger than it was when i joined and is very successful and um, very well known and so it 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 has been built up enormously since i arrived so that was that was the story really i i was i i i first of all had a a research association with cardiff where they paid for a, two of my research assistants to, to, to be hired by me on, on research work. And I, I was doing part-time teaching. And then I, it, it became a full-time um, post over about a five-year period. Do you have a preferred city between Cardiff and Liverpool? Well, you know, once you've been in Liverpool, you never really, you, you, you can never really get it out of your system. It's yeah. an extraordinary place, as you know. And, Whenever I go there, I always in, enjoy myself and I, I, I love the city. But I mean, Cardiff is a much more sensible city, really, than Liverpool. I mean, Liverpool is full of uh, Liverpudlians who are a fairly unusual breed and <laughs> not everybody's cup of tea. I mean, I happen to love them, but, you know, a lot of people don't. And I think Cardiff is a much more orthodox place full, full of much more sensible people, really. So what would you say is your most impactful academic paper or your favourite one to work on? Well, when, when I was at Liverpool, I was working on a new way of, of, of modelling the economy that, um, 
with rational expectations. And that was quite a new thing in those days. And so I think that I, I with, with my co-author, my main co-author, Kent Matthews, who's also at Cardiff, we, we produced a new model of the UK economy called the Liverpool model. Of course, we called it the Liverpool model because we were in Liverpool. And it was a rational expectations model of the UK. And it was the first, the first one really to be done. And so it was quite challenging. And we published um, a, a paper on it in, in a, a journal called the Carnegie Rochester Conference papers, which is an offshoot of the Journal of Monetary Economics. And that's probably my most influential paper, really. And, you know, obviously, I've done things since then that are um, different. But, uh, you know, go, that going back, that was probably the, the, the first, the most um, novel thing I, 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 I did. Okay. So how was your experience as one of the Treasury panel of forecasters? Well, the Treasury panel was a strange creation because that monetary and monetary policy had been a complete fiasco. You see, we had joined the exchange rate mechanism of the European Union on a fixed exchange rate with the Deutschmark. And um, I and several others had warned that this would be a disaster because you know we you, you should run a monetary policy and with a floating exchange rate and that allows you to set interest rates suitable for your economy and instead the government of john major really had um gone off uh, well actually he he and douglas heard who was foreign secretary at the time of mrs thatcher's final government kind of bullied her really against her better judgment to join the exchange rate mechanism. And we duly uh, fixed the exchange rate to the Deutschmark. It was an obsession in the Conservative Party at the time of certain of certain of the senior politicians, among them Nigel Lawson and John Major and Douglas Hurd. There was this kind of cabal, really, of, uh, of ministers that wanted to join the European uh, currency system. And so uh, in the end, you know, you can, you, you won't remember because you're too young, but um, Nigel Lawson resigned as chancellor over all this. And uh, he and Geoffrey Howe both resigned and eventually brought Mrs. Thatcher down, of course. But before they did, John Major and Douglas Hurd had another go at her to, to go and join the the currency system and she felt she couldn't really resist at this point she was she'd been quite weakened by the by the resignation of Nigel Lawson and Jeffrey Howe and um, so she agreed and of course it was a complete disaster it plunged Britain into a terrible recession because it happened to coincide with German reunification and a very strong Deutschmark which drove up um, the Deutschmark against the pound. And the only way to deal with that was to raise interest rates in Britain. So it precipitated the most horrendous recession in which a lot of people who'd, who'd voted for Mrs. Thatcher lost their houses and their jobs and their businesses. It, it was a real disaster in every respect. And so, you know, we eventually were 
pushed out of that mechanism in um, so-called Black Wednesday in, in 1992. Um, uh, uh, and um, then, of course, the government was completely at a loss as to what to do. And um, so what they did was they took two of, their, uh, two of their main critics, which was me and Tim Congdon, and put them on a panel of so-called wise men to kind of help reconstruct the situation. So what they did was they, they created a new environment where they were going to target inflation. They would, we, we would float the exchange rate, which is what we said they should do all along, and set interest rates according to the needs of the country. And uh, they, they then decided to have an inflation target, which was a, quite a sensible idea for, 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 for orientating and monetary policy. But of course, they, they'd never done it before. So they thought, the Treasury thought, well, we need some cover for this. So we'll appoint a few outside economists to kind of give us a bit of covering fire, you know. And that was the origin of the the panel. So it was like, in a way, it was a forerunner of the what's now the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. It was a sort of forerunner. And the idea was that this panel would advise the Chancellor and the Governor of the Bank of England on what to do with interest rates and monetary policy, you know, in, in this new inflation targeting system. So we were sort of set up there as Aunt Sally's really in a way, so that the treasury could blame us a bit if it, if it all went pear-shaped. But of course, luckily it didn't. The economy actually recovered quite well against all the skeptics and pessimists who said, you know, now we were out of the exchange mechanism, all hell would break loose. Of course it didn't, it was nonsense. It was all nonsense. And so we, Tim Congdon and I were the kind of the main anti-European exchange rate mechanism people on the on the panel and there were a few old previous um european exchange rate uh, pro 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 the mechanism economists on it as well and between us we sort of battled it all out and tried to make some suggestions as to what interest rates should should be so that was the story of the panel really and luckily it had a happy ending because the economy did rather well inflation came under control the economy recovered and we came out of the recession and the 90s were a good period really in which unemployment came down and the economy grew and so you know it uh, it was a it, it, it had a happy ending which I'm, I'm i'm very pleased about good so when did would you say you became a eurosceptic well you Mrs. Thatcher made a famous speech called the Bruges speech from in, in Bruges in, in, in 1988. Um, and it was really uh, saying that she had made a lot of reforms of the UK economy, you know, um, we liberalized the labor market and brought in trade union legislation to, to allow businesses, you know, to manage and that sort of thing. And um, uh, she'd also cut taxes quite substantially and she was quite worried about Jacques Delors' plans for, um, for 
for using the single market legislation, which uh, had as a as as a rider on it that you could have quali qualified majority voting. So countries that wanted to bring in um, policies in the single market could do so by by a qualified majority, which could overrule us. And Delors had said in a speech to the Trade Union Congress uh, earlier than, than the, uh, that year that in, in 10 years time, I think he said something like 80% of the legislation governing the UK in economics would come from Europe. And Mrs. Thatcher wrote this, um, made this speech saying this was quite unacceptable and that Jack Delors' ideas of a social market, which would be bringing in um, all sorts of intervention in the labor market and other parts of the economy that she'd basically got rid of, was going to be a backdoor to, um, to the very things that she had you know, reformed in the UK economy. And she said this was not acceptable and was, was a great mistake and that uh, it would lead to trouble and uh, she would resist it you know, within the European Union. Of course, within a couple of years, she was out of office and, um, and then you had a series of, of, of governments that were sort of notionally pro pro-Europe. I mean, John Major's government was obviously keen on joining the exchange rate mechanism, though it was against the social charter, or the social chapter, as it, it came to be called, of the single market. Um, and, um, and then you had the, the Blair government, of course, which actually wanted to sign up the single currency, which was another of Delors' proposals to strengthen the powers of Europe. And so that that moment of the Bruce Street uh, speech was when I too, you know, changed my mind because a lot of people ha have, don't realize that it was Mrs. Thatcher that actually introduced the single market in Europe because she thought it would be a way in which Europe would sign up to competition, you know, in free markets. And so she was very keen to join the single market. In fact, she basically created it. And Delors, of course, used her used her as a kind of battering ram to, to, uh, to, to get the single market legislation through in the early 80s. And this was the heyday when Mrs. Thatcher was very pro-Europe and pro the single market. And it was all going to be a great new way of managing our, econ our economy, you know, in a sort of competitive Europe. Because it didn't work out like that because as I said, Delors changed his mind and wanted a social market. He wanted to introduce a lot of social legislation, which overrode a lot of the competition and free market philosophy that the single market was supposed to have. And so it was really this betrayal by Delors. And then he followed it with this uh, proposal to have a single currency, which was uh, many of us uh, argued then, and we still do, that it was a crazy idea because you, you can't have a single currency without a single country. You know, because look at the UK, the UK is a single currency because we can help the bits of the country, you know, that are having trouble with competing in world markets. We can, we have transfers across the economy to, between regions, you know, between the center and uh, the regions that uh, have, have difficulties because that none of that exists in Europe. And so basically the law, Jacques Delors is really 
the reason that Mrs. Thatcher became a Eurosceptic and the reason I became a Eurosceptic. Okay. Would you say you don't feel the European markets need protecting from markets outside of Europe itself? No, the whole idea of the European single market was it would be an engine of competition and wouldn't be an engine of protection. And of course, Delors and the, and, and, and the French um, government generally were much more in favor of protection and direction of the economy. What they call in France, dirigisme. And so their whole philosophy was one of protection and industrial strategy, really, European champions. And it was only the, uh, us and the Germans uh, who, who opposed that and kept the EU from becoming even more protectionist than it was. But fundamentally, the whole EU's philosophy has veered away from that of free markets towards social intervention and protection. And I think it has been very bad for the European economy to go down that route because you can see they've, they've erected quite high protectionist barriers, um, you know, in food and manufacturing, because food is, of course, the big, big French interest and manufacturing big German interest. So what both France and Germany did was to, to use the powers of the EU to protect their favorite industries, really, food and manufacturing, which is badly against our interests and bad for the EU too. What would you say to people in the British agricultural sector now who are worried of the fact that we are leaving and we will no longer have protections on certain items? Well, I think that, that, that you, if, you, if you talk to British um, farmers, they're actually quite pleased to have regulation taken out of the EU's hands because the EU was... was foisting on the farming community a lot of very backward looking regulations which prevented them reaching high productivity and so i think i think you'll find that the the farm lobby is pretty keen to have new regulation from the british government as far as you know free, free markets are concerned they haven't really got much to worry about because they're capable of very high productivity and the british government have made it quite clear that they'll support the bits of the of the agricultural industry that uh, you know are not so able to become highly productive such as the upland farming you know uh, they'll support it on the basis of their environmental contribution which makes a lot of sense so i think that british agriculture is well placed to do to do well in a in a in a world dominated free market frankly was it difficult to come out um, against other economists and support Brexit? Well, you know, I think um, a lot has been made of the fact that because I was a sort of lone voice and a sort of, you know, a weirdo because, you know, all the other economists were... I'm not calling you that here, Patrick. ...were remain, you know. So I've had a lot of this over the years. And um, the, the, the thing you've got to know about the economics profession is that, like any profession, it, know where it knows where its bread is buttered, you know. And frankly, the EU buttered a lot of economists' bread, not just the civil service, which, which saw the EU as a source of great promotion and 
interesting broadening civil service activity, but also professional economists out in business who, of course, um, worked for businesses which did not want Brexit because they wanted protection, to yeah. put it quite straightforwardly, you know. Why would you, why would Turkeys vote for Christmas? And business was very much against Brexit, as we know very well. And so a lot of economists either work for business or government, both of which were very much against Brexit for their own personal reasons. And when you get a situation like that, you don't get an entirely honest answer from the, from the economics profession, really. I mean, it's very hard for people to dissociate their own interests from their beliefs. And so there was enormous bias already starting off from self-interest in the economics profession against Brexit. And then another thing came across the trail, which was a big, a big move in the trade part of the profession, trade economists, to, to reorientate the subject towards what's known as the gravity model, um, which cuts across the old free trade models that trade economists used to use, uh, you know, every, every, everyone used to use, going back to Ricardo, you know, comparative advantage and all that sort of thing that we teach. But a lot of these economists in trade have have kind of been taken with the notion that it doesn't matter so much about comparative advantage. It, married, it matters what neighborhood you're in, you know, and you trade just like Lancashire trades with Yorkshire or, or, or Essex trades with, you know, um, London. Trade in this kind of so-called new gravity view is dominated by who your neighbors are. And they forgot about the broader theories of free trade, um, which go back, you know, for centuries really about traditional free trade, which is about comparative advantage. And you, you sell the things that you've got uh, a, you've got a, a lot of endowments in, you know, you've got a lot of land or you've got a lot of labor that's highly skilled. You tend to sell things uh, that, your comparative advantage in, in land and, and skilled labor would, would, would make you good at producing. So the, there's a big battle really going on in trade and on the, on the whole at the moment, it's been run by gravity people. And that's the fashion at the moment in, in trade economics. But, you know, I've never been that keen on fashions. And, you know, there was a big fashion when I was a young economist in adaptive expectations models of the economy. And as I said at the beginning of our talk, I, I built a rational expectations model of the economy and everyone said this was a completely lunatic thing to do, but actually works very well because on the whole people behave pretty rationally. As, as, as we all know, when, when you sort of put them all together and they, they tune into whatever's the, the most um, plausible thing that's actually going on in the economy, they, so rational expectations works very well. And also we find when we look at the data and the evidence that the old theories of trade also work very well for the UK. If you look at what our main export is, it's the city and business services. And that's because we've got a lot of people who are pretty good at, at, at learning that stuff and doing that stuff. We've got a, a, big, a big reservoir of skilled labor in the UK 
we've got other endowments like the common law and we've got a lot of land you know in in those old docklands uh, of, of, of London, which have turned out to be really useful for building things like Canary, Canary Wharf and so forth. And so, hey presto, what you see is what the UK actually dominates, uh, what dominates its trade is the city of London, which is exactly what the old fashioned theories would say. And so if you look at British trade, it turns out the facts really favor, you know, the traditional theory of comparative advantage, and they, they really don't favor gravity at all. And we, we've, we've done econometric tests of this. Uh, you know, I have a paper out with uh, a co-author, Yong Deng Zhu, which is in the Open Economies Review, which carries out a powerful test of these two theories on UK trade. So, uh, you know, I, I think the facts and the evidence of the UK is strongly in favor of, um, the, the idea that free trade is good for us and that we will benefit from free trade and that our trade with Europe is really something that's actually quite small relative to what you might expect if the gravity theory model is, is true. And if you look at the facts, they tend, to, they tend to favor the idea that we do well out of free trade and European trade is a bit of a by-blow for us, frankly. And I think we'll see it get smaller as the years go on and our trade with the rest of the world will expand. Okay. So moving back a little bit, a little bit in time to the 2008 financial crisis, was austerity the right policy to pursue? Well, um, in retrospect, it wasn't. But of course, at the time, we didn't know that central banks were going to be as stupid as they were. Fundamentally, the financial crisis was caused by central banks. And then they reacted to the financial crisis really badly by hugely regulating the banks in a sort of revenge move against the banks whom they, they tried to blame for the crisis. Um, so they stopped banks getting back their lending activities by huge regulation just after the crisis hit. And that, was, that meant the recovery from the crisis was very weak. And then of course, the next thing the central banks did was to print a whole load of money, which drove interest rates to zero. That's causing themselves to be pretty powerless in the new situation. So in fact, austerity in itself was not a, was not a terrible idea um, the, but it was made a terrible idea by the fact the central banks completely wrecked the world economy. First, by creating the crisis. I mean, they created the, 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 the central banks in the, in the noughties allowed a credit boom to get completely out of hand and cause a huge commodity boom and a great boom in the world economy, which came to a crashing halt in 2008 with a huge commodity ex price explosion. You know, so the central banks were, were having to tighten money then. And of course, as they tightened money, a lot of the credit that had been created in the noughties sort of fell out of the sky. And the banks, of course, then went broke. A lot of banks went broke. Then governments had to bail out the banks. But then the central banks, 
went off on the tangent of saying those same banks had to have a lot more capital, which was very expensive to get. And that made it really hard for the banks to lend because if they lent, which we desperately needed them to do, you know, in 2009, we needed them to get credit going again. They had to go off cap in hand and find capital to match the lending because of these new regulations. But of course, this was really expensive. So they're very reluctant to do that. So what they did was to do the, the sort of lending that was supposedly very safe. They lent again to housing, you know, which, which was not what was needed. They really needed to lend to business, you see. So there was a very weak recovery. And it was therefore a mistake to have austerity. But had the central banks done the right thing and had we had a better managed crisis, you know, then the bailout, which was enormous, you know, needed to be paid off really. And it could have been paid off by, you know, uh, austerity. But of course the combination of austerity and this, this uh, collapse of, 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 of credit was very bad for the economy. And it took us a long time to get out of the financial crisis as a result. And I think there's a big lesson from that. And, and that is today, we really shouldn't go down that austerity route again. I mean, we, we've had the COVID bailout, you know, but which is huge. But I think the lesson of the financial crisis is we shouldn't go down the austerity route again. We should, we should actually, on the contrary, um, try to get monetary policy back on its feet, use fiscal policy to push the economy into a growth mode, you know, a strong recovery from, from the COVID crisis and um, not worry too much about debt. debt. Debt, you know, when you have big debts like we did after the Second World War and we did after the Napoleonic Wars, the best thing to do is to, to let them gradually fall relative to GDP while pursuing policies to keep the economy recovering. And that's the lesson of the Second World War. Um, and indeed the, the lesson from the Napoleonic Wars, just, just let the debts gradually fall relative to GDP, take the long view, and then over time, the debt will become safe relative to GDP. It'll come down to the 30 to 40% region, which is completely safe, you know, and you don't want it to go much below that. And you, you want it to go below the 60% level, which is still a bit high, at the moment, you know, the debt is about 100% of GDP, but we can foresee that over the next 30 years or, or less, you know, debt to GDP will come down towards 50% of GDP just from good growth. And so we, we need to take a long view today and not go be panicked into austerity again, you know, which, which, which was a bad mistake combined with the mistakes of monetary policy after the financial crisis. So do you think uh, Rishi Sunak hinting at tax rises in the future is a good uh, good policy to pursue now? No, no, no I think he's got it wrong. I think the treasury got it wrong, you see. I mean, the treasury only, only have one tune, which is bring down debt. They're a one tune piano, really. Um, 
or oboe or something, you know, <laughs> that's the only tune they can play. It suits them fine because it keeps the treasury as top dog, you know, the treasury wants, wants to control other departments. That's the way it, it, it stays really important. But of course, from our point of view, uh, and the economy, we, we really don't want this now. And it was the treasury, of course, who were very keen on austerity after the financial crisis, because they said, you've, you've, you've done this huge bailout, now you've got to pay it all off. And they're doing the same today. That's the tune they play, but it's the wrong tune. You know, we, we really need to, uh, and Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson really need to say, no, we have to keep, we have to support growth. And then the debt will look after itself in the long term. I mean, after all, everyone's very happy to lend to us at pretty low interest rates. It's not as if we're a basket case about to become insolvent. So we should have confidence in ourselves, you know, and go for, any, uh, for policies that support growth and get the economy moving again. I mean, that's, that's common sense, really, I, I think. How would you say we should balance that growth with our environment? Oh, the environment. Well, I think that, you know, growth and technology are the way to protect the environment. I mean, I think we need, we need tech. It's, it's good technology that produces growth and it's good technology that will protect the environment. I mean, if you go back to the days when London was had terrible in environmental problems, you know, the air was disgusting and so forth. The way we, we dealt with that was to, to, to bring in new technology and uh, to, that didn't produce so much environmental pollution. So I don't think technology and growth are any contradiction of the environment. I think to, to deal with the environment, you need better technology. And we know that good technological New, new good technological processes are the key to, to, to cleaning up the environment. You know, they're the key to, to having airplanes, you know, that are less polluting and a greener environment generally, and also to climate change. I mean, that's the way forward. And we've seen enormous strides in technology in solar energy uh, and, and, and wind energy, you see. So the, that's the way forward, really, to, to deal with these problems. And we, we, we really don't want to go into sort of Luddite anti-technology sort of mode, because that, that's the path to, to low living standards and a bad environment. Would you say the government should be investing in those sectors now? Or do you think they should go down the route of putting Begovian taxes on those parts of the economy? Yeah, you know, I mean, Pergovian taxes have got a role in stimulating new technologies. Uh, so there's no real contradiction between, um, you know, Pergovian taxes, which are designed to encourage new technologies in a way that, you know, is less polluting. There's no contradiction between that and, um, you know, government policies that favor new technologies and help the new technologies come into being. I mean, you've got an example with vaccines. I mean, I'm not at all against the idea of government collaborating with the private sector to produce new technologies. I mean, vaccine, the vaccines uh, triumph is, is, is a really good example of that. So, and if you look at new technologies, often governments had a, a pivotal role in stimulating them. 
often a lot of these new technologies come out of defense. If you look at the history of, of, of things like the internet, that came out of defense. So government collaboration in new technologies is, is not a, something I, I'm, I'm opposed to at all. I think it's got to be done very hard-headedly, you know, um, because it's very easy to get for government to get sucked into things that are a complete waste of money. But as long as government's pretty hard-headed and does things that support R&D and new technology, I don't, I don't think there's any problem with that. It's just got to be done in a very intelligent and uh, far-seeing way. Okay. So on to our final question now. Patrick, you have described the government's top scientific advisors as useless in the fight against COVID-19 and suggested to scrap the two-meter rule and replace it with a one-meter rule. How are you making these trade-offs? Well, you know, there's lots we don't know about COVID, um, but we, we do know that uh, we, we've had a, a tremendous lockdown um, uh, uh, process which has damaged the economy enormously. I mean, in, in 2020, due to lockdown, the economy dropped 10% year on year. So uh, a lot of the debate that's gone on over lockdown has really not taken into account the effects on the economy. And we did some work, uh, my colleague David Mina and I did some work on how on, on a model of COVID and the economy. And we, we compared what happened in Sweden, where there was a much more voluntary approach to lockdown using social advice and leaving, leaving it to households to, to make the decisions much more. And Sweden uh, has had a much more, a much less damaged economy as a result of the policies it's pursued. Um, in the first wave. Now, I'm not going to defend everything that Sweden's done, you know, uh, but it is a fact that in the first wave, we took a very interventionist approach to the economy, whereas Sweden took a much more hands-off approach. And as a result, the, the, the economic damage to Sweden was much smaller than, the, than that to the UK. And this really, this aspect of the whole COVID policy was not enough weight in my opinion by by Whitehall during the first wave and had it had it been I think we would have had much less damage to the economy um, and Sweden in fact if you look at the Swedish data it had as much success in the first wave as we did now obviously the second wave has been a bit different it's been much more infectious and um, it, it came after the first wave had had gone and it's been much more difficult to deal with but of course luckily we've had vaccination being rolled out pretty fast in the second wave which has been very helpful for us so it's been a very dynamic situation i i think the first wave was a was a difficult a different scenario from the second wave and i don't think we handled it terribly well i think we 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 intervened much more um, than, the, than the Swedes did. And I think the Swedes were more successful than us in terms of avoiding economic damage. I think that's, that's the point. Had economists been involved a bit more, we might have had a more successful first wave. You agree that our economy has been badly damaged by the restrictions put in place. 
but then we've also had one of the highest death tolls in Europe, one of the worst death rates in the world. How would you say we should balance protecting people and protecting the economy at the same time? Well, you know, I think that the um, uh, it is a difficult trade-off, and I don't think there are any easy answers on this. I think we just have to 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 take the facts as they come out and try to respond to them as best we can, given the the science and the economy. I I think in the current uh, second wave we've come much closer to getting it right than we did in the first wave, very largely because we've been helped by the whole vaccination um, success. And so I'm, I think we're now in a much better position. Um, and if we go forward and we get a third wave, which we may well do, you know, in the coming winter, we're, we're now in a position where we've got vaccination as a weapon and uh, we've 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 got lockdown i think in a cupboard and i hope locked in the cupboard frankly because i hope what we will do going forward which is where we are now we will handle uh, uh, any any second waves by having offered everybody vaccination so we be able to treat future waves of COVID the way we treat waves of flu, which for years now we've handled by vaccinating people and then not having lockdowns. And the government's more or less said that's what it's going to do. And I would welcome that because I think we now need to go into a world where we kind of live with COVID and we have the vaccination. We roll it out every winter then the same way we roll out flu vaccination. And then we just let people behave in a normal way, you know, take the sorts of precautions that they have always taken over flu. I mean, if, if the office is full of flu, you don't go in, <laughs> you know, if you've got a nasty, a nasty running fluey sort of bug, you just take care. You don't, you, you, you stay at home and you don't give it to other people. I mean, that's sort of common sense and that the way we handle flu and so I'm hoping that that's how we will we'll handle COVID in the future. It will be much more like the way we handle flu. And we don't keep on closing down the economy. I mean, I'm, I can't promise, promise that that's what's going to happen. But that's what the government is now saying it will do. And I think it makes a lot of sense. With COVID, you could be asymptomatic and then not have any idea you're carrying it. And then go into the office like you spread and could spread it to everybody. Yeah, but if everybody's been vaccinated, we know this is now having a big effect on prevention as well. So um, uh, this is this is the hope that we will now have a situation where um, you've been vaccinated, so you uh, you 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 pretty uh, you you won't get symptoms unless you know something's gone wrong, uh, in which case you should know. I mean, obviously, we just don't know. Yeah. Uh, until until we've we've gone through this situation so there's lots we don't know as as everybody of course is aware but that the idea is that we'll vaccinate everybody and then we we must hope that we'll 
we'll know enough to be able to react to anything that arrives as it arrives. So we, we, it isn't just symptoms, is it? It's also information because we will have tests and so forth available to us to kind of uh, to tell us, uh, even if we haven't got symptoms. I mean, I would imagine that the environment we'll be facing will be one in which there will be quite a lot of testing going on besides the vaccination so that people have got sort of double double protection here. They've got the vaccination and also they kind of got knowledge from maybe these, these tests that, uh, you know, are, are quick. Um, uh, that that can, 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 can provide another layer of protection. You know, this is, this is how we must hope things develop so that, you know, if you've got, if you've got a nasty, uh, a nasty sort of fluey COVID-y thing, you don't, you don't, you don't go into the office. And also, there's the kind of layer of testing that you could take as well uh, as a sort of second uh, line of defense. Patrick, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you. Hope you've enjoyed the interview.